Hello and welcome to The Global Current. I am your host for today, Liam Brucker-Casey. Today, I am joined by Phil Gursky. Gursky has extensive experience with counterterrorism and government intelligence in Canada, having worked as an analyst for the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, where he specialized in violent Islamist-inspired homegrown terrorism and radicalization. And he also worked at the Communications Security Establishment, where he specialized in the Middle East. Phil Gursky is now the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting Limited, and hosts his own podcast and YouTube channel, where he discusses counterterrorism and intelligence. Gursky has written six books to date concerning terrorism, and his most recent book, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada, From Confederation to the Present, is out now. It's a pleasure being here. To start off, let's turn to Canada, where there have been a recent spat of burnings of churches, which many believe to be in response to the recent revelation of mass graves of indigenous people. While in America, um, indigenous people are generally referred to as Native American, in Canada, of course, um, referred to as First Nations people. Is there a historic precedent for violence against either the state or private citizens or other groups on behalf or by uh, First Nations people in response to historic oppression by either the Canadian government or other Canadians um, involved in that oppression? I would say it's a fairly new development. So I imagine a lot of your listeners are, are Americans. To give you a bit of context, Beginning in the 19th century, a succession of Canadian governments believed that what we call First Nations, you call, I guess, American Indians, would be better served in state schools. And so what happened was that the government essentially yanked them from their own families. They, they were, you know, they're taken, put in these schools, often run by a Christian church, either the Protestant, i.e. Anglican Church of Canada or the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, some were state run by the Canadian government. Many uh, instances of uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, obviously emotional abuse, psychological abuse uh, over the decades. This system actually in parts of Canada was uh, still around in the 1990s. But uh, so, you know, better part of a century, we had this uh, erroneous notion that First Nations children needed to become more Canadian. And at one point, even Prime Minister said we had to sort of, you know, take the savage out of the savage kind of thing. So it was a, it was a, it was a horrendous idea at the time. I'm not a big fan on judging 19th century morals and ideas in 21st century way of thinking, but that's a whole other issue. So we've known about this, this system for a very long time. We've known about the abuses, uh, including sexual abuse. And recent uh, discoveries in the past few months, uh, largely in Western Canada, in Alberta and British Columbia, showed that they had mass graves. Now, these have been either misinterpreted or miscast as mass killings. They were not mass killings. These were children who died while at residential schools and were buried. They were not sent back to their families. The graves, I believe, are not marked in many cases. So I, I'm not saying it was okay. It was definitely, it was a horrendous thing not to do, to allow parents to know their children had died. But th this is not a, a mass grave on the sense of something in Srebrenica, let's say in the 1990s, you know, with Bosnian Muslims. In the aftermath of some of this discoveries, there's been a lot of soul searching. Of course, we just passed our July 1st, which is your July 4th. A lot of people called for the cancelling of July 1st, marking your 154th birthday, uh, independence from Britain in 1867 because of this sordid past. I'm not one of those. 
But one of the other responses is, as you alluded to, a number of churches, I believe the number is up to six now, last time I counted, primarily in Alberta and British Columbia, have been burned down under suspicious circumstances. Police, I believe, are looking into the possibility it's arson. And obviously, you can't definitively say that they are a direct result of the discovery of the mass graves. But, you know, a, a fairly intelligent person would go down that path and say it may be, in fact, a reaction to, to, to this particular uh, horrendous part of Canadian history. If it is arson, i.e. a deliberately set fire, one can make the argument it's an act of political violence, meaning that it is an act of violence. Arson is an act of violence. And under Section 83.01 of the Criminal Code, which talks about terrorist activity, destruction of infrastructure for political, ideological, or religious means is an act of terrorism in Canada. I'm the only person who seems to be asking this question whether we could call this an act of terrorism. You can imagine how sensitive that is right now. But if you go by solely by the, the, the legal definition of, of what an act of terrorism is in Canada, you could make the case there are grounds here to actually charge someone with terrorist activity. Now, there's not hope in hell. Anyone's going to be charged with terrorism in this way. They're going to be charged with arson or some other crime, but it won't be terrorism. The, the law also requires the Crown, which is the prosecution in Canada, to prove beyond reasonable doubt that the motivation for these crimes was one of ideological, political, or religious. And that's a very high hurdle to meet in Canadian law. So, you know, you could kill someone and be charged with murder, have the charges changed to terrorism, and actually, you know, in the end, be found guilty only of murder because the Crown couldn't prove beyond reasonable doubt the reason why you killed someone. So it seems to have died down a little bit in the past couple of days. I haven't heard of any burnings in the last two. Maybe there have been. But, it, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to posit the possibility that these burnings are in direct correlation to the discovery of these mass graves. Is there an effort uh, underway to kind of identify what is or if something is uh, radicalizing Canadians who are aware of the situation, radicalizing them um, so that they feel that perhaps violent action is necessary to correct certain wrongs? Um, is there an effort or is there already identified radicalization taking place that might explain or at least help us understand these recent church burnings? That's a great question. Uh, and it's something we wrestled with a lot when I was at the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. You know, we, we are mandated under our legislation, the CSIS Act from 1984, under Section 2C, to investigate acts of political, ideological, religious violence. Again, there is a possibility, there's a link here in this case, but you can imagine the sensitivity. A lot of Canadians would go apeshit if they thought that CSIS was investigating First Nations because of the possibility of violence that's tied to some kind of underlying political or ideological cause. This is going to be a tough one because there'd be the perception the Canadian government was ignoring over 100 years of terrible attitudes towards the First Nations by pursuing terrorist charges in this regard. So I'm not holding my breath. Uh, is there radicalization amongst certain First Nations? Absolutely. We've had railway blockages. We've had other damage done. Uh, we've had boats sunk in Canada uh, by probably First Nations protesting against certain things like fishing rights. Is it politically motivated? I think the argument could be made there. But given the length and breadth of historical errors made by a whole series of Canadian governments dating back to the 19th century, I'd be very surprised if we ever see the word terrorism or terrorist activity uttered in the same sentence as arson and or political reaction to the mass graves. Right. Moving on to terrorism more broadly, with the COVID-19 pandemic and the 
required social distancing and decrease in travel. Has there been an effect? Has there been an increase uh, in terrorist activity or radicalization that can be linked to the pandemic? And is there a trend or is that too difficult to identify? You know, Liam, a lot of people speculated that during COVID, we would see a rise in terrorism from the perspective that, you know, people lost their jobs, businesses were closed, uh, people, they had restrictions on their movement. You, I mean, obviously in your country, in my country, we have people that say no more lockdowns, you know, uh, the vaccine is fake. It's all a, some kind of a, I don't know, Bill Gates uh, plot to, to make more money. I, I always laugh when I hear these things. And a lot of people, a lot of credible people were talking about a rise in terrorism that would be linked to what we, 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 we widely call the far right, which is a terrible term. It encompasses neo-Nazis, it accompanies white nationalists, white supremacists. Some would lock QAnon in that group. Some even throw violent incels that, 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 you know, one or two violent incels in the world would be part of the far right. And a lot of people were, were boldly predicting we would see a rise in terrorism. The bottom line is we haven't. We haven't seen a rise of terrorism in the West that's linked to, in any way, the pandemic. You know, yes, we had that plot in Michigan to kidnap the governor by a bunch of three percenters, I believe it was. But that was that was wrapped up by the FBI. We had, of course, the um, frat frat party riot on, on Capitol Hill on January 6th. I'm not calling it an act of terrorism. I'm just calling it a bunch of morons that sort of got their way in the Capitol. I said, holy shit, we're in the Capitol. Now what do we do? I mean, that was kind of like, the, I guess, the pandemic in a way. Also, the, you know, the Trump administration leaving and Trump's allegations of an unfair election. So, I mean, knock on wood, we haven't seen a rise in terrorism because of the pandemic. Now, interestingly, we haven't seen a decrease in terrorism outside of that. So I monitor what's happening around the world. And as you said in your introduction, uh, my specialty really is Islamist extremism. I worked Al-Qaeda, I worked ISIS. I mean, I, I worked them all in the 2000s and 2010s. So that's what I know best. And all my books are focused mostly on Islamist extremism. That isn't budged iota. Boko Haram is carrying out attacks weekly in Nigeria. Al-Shabaab is carrying out attacks weekly in Somalia. The Allied Democratic Front is carrying out attacks weekly in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, Mozambique has an Islamic State affiliate now that's killed, beheading people. The Taliban, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, is, is busier than ever in Afghanistan. And, and, and more and more, you know, ISIS in, in Iraq and Syria. From their perspective, the pandemic has been non-consequential. It hasn't made a bit of difference. Now, true they have carried out their attacks locally. So the restrictions on travel that you're that you're and your listeners are well aware of don't affect them. I mean if you're a Boko Haram terrorist in Borno State, you don't have to get on a plane to attack a village and start burning people. If you're an Al-Shabaab terrorist, you can walk into Mogadishu with a suicide bomb like this just happened last night in a restaurant. So terrorism has not been affected by COVID in both senses then. We're not seeing a surge in the far right. Not yet. I'm not I, I you know what? I never predict things because I don't have a crystal ball. I can't read the future. But all I'm saying is that a lot of the warnings of an increase in, in far-right terrorism tied to the general situation of COVID-19 have not manifested themselves so far. And with more and more people, like myself, getting second vaccinations now, and maybe re return to normal by the fall, will they have missed their chance? I don't know. On the other hand, we've not seen a decrease in terrorism from the traditional groups, the Islamist extremist groups in, in Asia uh, and in Africa. So kind of a, a two-parted answer to your question, but... Um, yeah, many might be surprised that all these calls for a rise in terrorism by you know the, the far right simply haven't haven't materialized, which is a good thing, right? Um, you know, your country and my country are remarkably free of terrorism, relatively speaking. 
Yes, we've had our attacks, lone actors, groups, etc. But, you know, Afghanistan has an attack a day. Actually, Afghanistan has seven attacks a day. And, you know, if I, can, if I even give the most liberal count of terrorist attacks in Canada, I count about 20 since 1867. That's an attack every seven years. We have an attack every seven years, and Afghanistan has seven attacks a day. I could actually give you a bit of a perspective on the difference between our two countries. I imagine a possible blind spot among the public, at least, is kind of how radicalization takes place and, and how that occurs and how crucial, of course, that is to the future of terrorism and counterterrorism. Is there a warranted fear that because people were traveling less, staying at home more, spending more time online, that um, radicalization uh, was able to increase uh, during the pandemic? Um, is that fear um, somewhat justifiable? Possibly. So you alluded in your introduction, I've written six books. My first book was called The Threat from Within, Recognizing Al-Qaeda Inspired Radicalization and Terrorism in the West, based on my work at CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. We know a lot about radicalization. We know where it takes place. We know what it looks like. We know how it's transmitted. And you're absolutely right. A lot of people, because of the, the crackdowns and, and the shutdowns, uh, we're spending a lot more time online. And uh, the online environment is, is, is crucial. I mean, it's the spread of information. And, and you know, we used to do an interesting parallel. So if you look at the way telecommunications used to work, if I go back to the Iranian Revolution in the 1960s and 70s, Ayatollah Khomeini, who was in exile in, in Paris, I was actually a Farsi linguist for, for 25 years. He sent his lectures to Iran, smuggled it in cassette tapes. Does anybody even know what a cassette tape looks like in 2021? That was the mode of transmission back then. Al-Qaeda in the early 90s in Saudi Arabia would send their ideology via fax machines. And then, of course, now we're looking at online and the bazillions of platforms. We've all you know, heard about, you know, uh, 4chan and 2chan. There's so many different ways that you can send the information. So I think potentially the answer is yes, that more information is being shared. But here's the critical part, Leo. The vast majority of people who consume this information and become radicalized never do a goddamn thing. We, 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 we realize that in the security service. Just because you're radicalized doesn't mean you're going to act on it. And, and the reasons could be multiple. Either A, you're incompetent, which most terrorists are, by the way. Uh, you're a coward. You're not really serious about it. Uh, you're afraid of getting in trouble with your mom or your dad or your boss or your girlfriend or your wife, whatever kind of thing, or husband. And, you know, we, we had a term for it in the 2000s. We called these guys couch jihadis because that's as far as they, they never get off the couch. They'd post stuff and they'd comment on stuff and they'd share stuff, but that's as far as it went. The challenge, of course, for security intelligence and law enforcement is differentiating the wannabes from the real actors. And unfortunately, there's no foolproof method for doing that. Uh, there's no, you know, I've got seven out of 10, you know, I tick seven out of 10 boxes. I need to be investigated or arrested. It doesn't work that way. So it is true that more information is being shared more widely and more rapidly today. And that's only going to get worse, right? I mean, you know, here, here you are in California. I'm just south of Ottawa. We're recording this live. When my career started, Liam, before you were twinkling your parents' eye, this technology was a dream. It was utopian. Uh, here I am, you know, 60 years later, and it's real. Who knows what's going to happen in 60 years' time? You know, six years' time or even six months' time. So I do think that the technology is a worrisome vehicle for the spread of radical and violent ideologies. But it is not the cause of the radical ideology. It's not the cause of the radical ideology. It's merely a vehicle. And if we get to some kind of Star Trek next generation 
world where uh, you know Diana Troy is is communicating and telepathically, empathically with people. Maybe that's what the next stage is. I'll receive my messages from, from, by some kind of empathetic, you know, Bin Laden kind of thing. So it's important not to draw one-to-one -one relationship between, between radicalization and violence. It simply doesn't it doesn't work that way. But yes, the facilit the facilitation and the ease with which the information can be passed on, stored, and shared definitely keeps security services and law enforcement agencies awake at night. I can assure you of that. Uh, to kind of follow up on that, could you elaborate on the um, differences, I'm sure there are some, but the uh, differences in how people are radicalized in places like um, Afghanistan or northern Mozambique or Somalia, where the region is already fairly destabilized um, and there is conflict that is uh, surrounding people in their daily lives uh, versus Canada and the United States um, and Europe to a certain extent. Um, how is radicalization different when comparing these kind of two fairly distinct um, situations? You've really, you've thrown me a curveball. I, I, I've, I've never really thought of that. Certainly, I think that when you are in a, an unstabilized area like Afghanistan, like northeastern Mozambique, like northeastern Nigeria, like most of Somalia, it certainly is easier, I think, to find a willing audience for your message. Because the place has gone to hell in a handbasket anyway. The place is not functioning. Either the government is absent, like it is in many places of Somalia, or it's incompetent, like Nigeria. And the government, you know, the population has as much to fear from the government as they do from the violent actors. And I, I think if you live in a society like that, you're under the possibility where the messages might be more appealing because there's no counter messaging that's that's of any value. Like, okay, you're telling me to, to reject Al Shabaab's message. Well, what the hell is your message? Or, you know, Boko Haram is bad. Well, are you guys any better? The difference here in North America, I think, is obviously we, we're, we're, you know, we're first world advanced societies. We're wealthy societies. You know, we have poverty. Yes, we have abuses. Yes, we, we have all the kinds of issues that all human societies go through. But we have fully functioning, stable societies. That does not mean that, that radical ideologies can't spread. You've seen it in your country. I've seen it in my country. But it seems to me that you probably don't get the critical masses of people. I think that are willing to not just consume the ideology, but act on it. And, you know, Al-Shabaab has a hell of a lot easier time recruiting people to join its organization than, let's say, uh, QAnon does, or, uh, you know, a local Islamist extremist cell in, in Canada, United States, because there, there's less to complain about. There's less to criticize. I mean, they'll always find things they don't like. Right. I mean, we both had attacks in our countries where people wanted to punish us for our perceived sins in the Middle East and Asia. We had a, we had a cell in Canada in the mid 2000s. I worked on the so-called Toronto 18. They saw themselves as Al Qaeda in Canada, which is complete horseshit. But that's what they what they perceived themselves as and wanted to sort of you know bring an Islamic state to Canada. Like, good luck, guys. So it's not that they don't exist, but they probably don't exist in the critical masses that you see in the, in the areas that you alluded to, where there's extreme internal instability. Uh, either incompetent or counterproductive state action uh, or just a complete lack of ability to deal with a very violent situation. And when it comes to Afghanistan, in light of the uh, U.S. withdrawal, um, many are projecting that the Taliban will retake control of the Afghan government, basically completely. In light of this possibility, what is the likelihood that the Taliban will 
upon its kind of stepping into the role of governance, um, moderate its support for terror abroad? Or is it likely to continue in its ways um, and perhaps harbor international terrorist actors and provide support to them? Right. Again, you know, without the benefit of a crystal ball, I think a few things are fairly certain. I think the Taliban will assume, they already are, as you mentioned, assuming control. I monitor events in Afghanistan on a daily basis through open media, and there are Taliban attacks every day, and they are gaining control. I mean, just this morning, they uh, they gained control of 13 districts in Afghanistan. I don't know what a district is, but it sounds significant to me. The Taliban will become the de facto Afghan government. Whether it takes six months or six years, I have no idea. Some analysts are saying it could be as early as six months. So you guys are leaving as of tomorrow, July the 4th. Uh, by the way, happy July the 4th. And by Christmas, you can have a Taliban government. They will control the country. Will they moderate? I doubt it. Not the Taliban that I know. The other thing is that the Taliban have stated quite publicly that they're not going to kick Al-Qaeda out. And they may, in fact, some kind of find some kind of working relationship with Islamic State in Khorasan, which is in, in Nangarhar province in the extreme extreme east up against the border of China, which is interesting because the you know normally ISIS and, and the Taliban don't get along, but anything can happen, right? Whether or not Afghanistan will become the locus for international terrorism as it was on 9/11 is a really great question. You can see several, uh, I think, scenarios. The Taliban said, like, "Holy shit, look what happened last time we did this, right? We got invaded for 20 years." Uh, uh, or they could say, hey, um, as the Taliban said rightfully, uh, you know, from their perspective on, on, on September the 12th, way back in 2001, Al-Qaeda is our guests. We're not going to turf them out. They're, they, you know, we, we're okay with these guys being here. The fact that they, they just blew, you know, blew up two buildings in the Pentagon, not our problem. You know, that was their act, not ours. I, I just don't, I don't see a cheery future for, for the Afghan people under the Taliban. It'll go back to the, uh, the regime it was before, which was horrendous for women's rights. Uh, for anybody that didn't see, didn't abide by their, what I call that medieval anti-Diluvian, you know, version of Islam. Once they gain control, will they kind of settle for that? Or will they pay, you know, basically um, give succor and, and, and hospitality to a bunch of other terrorist groups? I, I can see that possibility. I mean, you know, Al-Qaeda wasn't the only group that was active in Afghanistan on 9-11. You had the IMU, the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan. And a bunch of other groups that are also were the, uh, the East Turkestan Islamic movement, what, what's called those, the, the Uyghurs, the Xinjiang, were active in Afghanistan as well. So will they invite the ball back? Will there be open doors? Hard to say, but uh, we know for sure, what, as, as sure as you can be without having a crystal ball, it's the Afghan people that are going to suffer the most when uh, U.S. forces are finally withdrawn. And it, um, will and it will complicate U.S. counterterrorism in the region as a result because you're not going to be, you won't be boots on the ground anymore. Yes, you can do a lot of things remotely, like signals intelligence. I mean, I did that for 17 and a half years, but there's nothing like having, you know, people in the country where you're actually trying to carry out operations. Perhaps not at the forefront of Americans' minds when they think of terrorism, but as I'm sure you know, is certainly uh, seeing its fair share of terrorism is Africa. In many ways, it almost seems like Africa has seen kind of a boiling point recently. Um, with the number of terrorist attacks in the Sahel, um, in Central Africa, in uh, northern Mozambique. Is that, in fact, a, a trend of increasing terror? Or is this somewhat along the lines of what has been going on in recent years? So, so terrorism in Africa really goes back to the 1980s, uh, late 70s in Egypt, with some of the groups like Al-Gama Islamiyah, uh, Egyptians Islamic Jihad, 
uh, you know, of course, the assassination of Sadat in 1980 by, by uh, Islamist terrorists. So it's been around for decades. And as you said, there's hotspots in the Sahel. I mean, Algeria, after the failed 1991 elections, had a decade's worth of terrorists, in which hundreds of thousands were killed by the GIA and, and groups like that. What's what's the reason for it? it? It's it's complicated. I mean, you've got incompetent governance, number one. The fact that the Western world hasn't paid a lot of attention to Africa. Yeah, you know, we've, Canadians have been in, in, in Mali and Americans have been in the Sahel and that kind of stuff, but not in enough numbers to make a difference. The French, of course, have had a massive presence in the Sahel for, for years now, and they carry out operations, which is great, but they don't seem to be making a dent in terrorism itself. Somalia has been a shit show now for three decades. It's not going to prove any time soon. There's an Islamic State affiliate now in Somalia, much smaller in the Puntland. Mozambique is fairly recent. Dates back to about 2017, I believe, was the first news we had out of Mozambique. Uh, Eastern Congo with the ADF. Uh, Boko Haram is now spreading into other parts of West Africa, into Benin, into the Ivory Coast, into Cameroon. I was in Cameroon doing a lecture before COVID hit, and um, there's a real concern about terrorist attacks, especially in Northwest Cameroon. And they're dealing with a, an Anglophone separatist movement in Southwest Cameroon, which they would call a terrorist group. And yeah, I can see why they, they would call it that. But I, I think generally it's a, it's a hard area to do CT operations because it's basically, it's very rural. It's very wild. It's very savage in terms of the climate, in terms of the uh, topography and geography. And uh, the locals couldn't organize a piss up in Navarre most times uh, when it comes to counterterrorism operations. And as I said earlier, with reference to Nigeria, if you're a Nigerian, who do you fear more? Nigerian army or Boko Haram? Great question, because neither of them have your, your best interests in mind. So I don't know if it's been, maybe it's been, built. I mean, if you, do, if you do raw numbers, maybe it's been building in the last couple of years. But as I said, terrorism in Africa is not a recent phenomenon. In fact, if you're familiar with David Rappaport's wave theory of terrorism, you know, his second wave was the anti-colonial wave. That, that started pretty well in places like Kenya in the 1940s with the Mau Mau Rebellion. Those were, those were terrorists that were carrying acts of violence against British rule. So Africa has been a haven uh, and a harbinger, I think, of, of terrorism in the region for a very, very long time. The difference being is that African terrorism doesn't tend to go elsewhere, right? Boko Haram isn't attacking Europe. Al-Shabaab's not attacking, you know, the Arabian Peninsula. They tend to be localized, that kind of thing. That, of course, could change. Al-Qaeda used to be localized, fighting Soviet troops in Afghanistan in the 1980s, and look what happened on 9-11. So, Again, that's that's not that's not I think we have all the answers right now, but uh, Africa has been a been a problem uh, place for terrorism for a very very long time, and I don't see any real need, any really room for improvement right now, unfortunately. Even if African terror is not as exported as terror in Asia or in Europe, or North America, is there a credible fear that as these kind of disparate movements grow in numbers um, and power that they may start coordinating or sharing resources or information. Could that be a reasonable threat to the stability of the region? Uh, I think maybe, you know, it's been almost eight years since I, it's actually been more than eight years since I lost, lost access to, sorry, six years I lost access to intelligence. So still going through withdrawal. Um, based on what I see, you do see some interesting minor collaboration between Islamic State affiliates and Al-Qaeda affiliates in the Sahel especially. Uh, of course, Boko Haram has been riven. Are they an Islamic State group or are they Al-Qaeda link kind of thing? It's, it's been you know that way for quite some time. There's definitely a copying, I think, of methodology. Um, you know, things like suicide bombs, uh, things like beheadings. I mean, Africa didn't have beheadings 
before, I mean, not to my best of my knowledge, before Islamist extremism came around. So I think they do copy each other. Whether they're collaborating, it's really hard to say. As I said, I, I do see some reports of collaboration in the Sahel, but beyond that, it's, um, I, don't, I don't think I know. I, I think one of the concerns would probably a lot of European uh, powers have is that if you start seeing the waves of migration that you saw in the mid 2000s, you know, the so-called boat people crossing the Mediterranean, getting to Lampedusa, getting to Sicily, things like that, getting to Malta, the concern would be terrorists using those uh, routes to try to gain a foothold, uh, you know, or in, in Ceuta or Melilla, the, the, the Spanish, uh, you know, so-called colonies in, in Morocco, you know, there might be some effort at infiltration via those types of means. Um, which is one of the reasons why the Europeans, aside from, you know, they, they want to control their migration patterns, they don't want people just showing up on the doorstep. I think there are concerns probably among security intelligence law enforcement agencies that at some point this could in fact facilitate the movement of terrorism as well. Kind of to go back to, as we mentioned, Mozambique specifically, uh, that uh, specific insurgency in the province of Cabo Delgado is believed to have started, I believe, um, by followers of a uh, Kenyan cleric that moved, I believe, after his death southward. And when they got to Mozambique, this kind of insurgency started after that. Is this kind of phenomenon where followers or individuals not only radicalize people on the ground, but themselves move geographically to a different location and uh, almost set up shop, uh, is that a trend or is that unique to certain areas um, or is that somewhat anomalous? Let, let me give an example. I'm, I'm sure all your listeners will recognize Anwar al-Awlaki, the Yemeni American, born in born in America to Yemeni parents, ended up going back, was killed in a drone, drone strike in 2011. Awlaki was such an important figure uh, for both your country and mine. We used to say that it wasn't a single person that we were investigating who wasn't a subscriber to Awlaki sermons. They're available on the internet. He, and he spoke, of course, fluent English. He was an American citizen by birth. And he spoke the language fluently without accent so they could be understood. And he was basically the radicalizer in chief. I mean, he really was that important. And of course, he did a lot of his preaching from Yemen, where he returned to uh, after he left the United States, after university. But yeah, I mean, it, it really is important to uh, for people to move physically. Think, think of all the, the radical clerics in, in London, United Kingdom, for years. People that would you know start their own mosques and spread this garbage. Uh, and they'd get followers. They'd get thousands of followers. So it, it is important. Like in the case of Mozambique, as you said, I don't, I don't remember the Kenya preacher's name, but the fact that he physically moved himself from Kenya to Mozambique and started a, a small following that grew in size is absolutely critical. We saw the same thing happening in Trinidad uh, a couple of years ago, where there was a, a, a radical clerk that went to you know Port of Spain and started up a, a radical Trinidadian cell. And in fact, you might not be aware, Trinidad and Tobago had the highest number of, of ISIS terrorists per capita than any country in the world. Some 300 Trinidadians with their families went to go fight for ISIS in the, in the mid-2010s. And a lot of that was because of the radical preaching out of one of the mosques in Port of Spain. So, yeah, it's absolutely critical. It's, most people are too stupid to understand the ideology. They really are. You need someone to explain it to you. You need someone to tell you why it's important, and most importantly, why you have a divine uh, mission to actually embrace this ideology and, and follow up on it. And, and that's what Olaki did for decades in the United States and, and in the Middle East. And that's 
mainly why the Americans took him out because he was, I mean, I'm sure that the CIA and the FBI realized how important he was to the radicalization of American citizens. Now, whether or not the, the droning was, was legal, that's a whole other issue, <laughs> right? When we look at the counterterrorism efforts, especially international counterterrorism efforts of some Western powers, like the flagship might be France, for example, which um, is very proactive and aggressive in its counterterrorism measures with its um, very large presence in the Sahel in many of its uh, former colonies in Africa. Is there a difference in how extensive and ambitious and how effective different powers are with their counterterrorism efforts abroad? I think yes and no. I'm glad you, you used to, you, you raised France. We used to joke about the French, God, God love the French. They would deport you and your family and your extended family and your babysitter and the guy you bought meat from and your post, you got to deliver your mail and a person you once said hi to in a store. They would deport, deport everybody if they found out you were a radicalism and extremist. They didn't give a shit. They just, just sent you a ball on a plane and said, you're going back to Morocco or Algeria or whatever kind of thing. Uh, that was just the French way. They just they, they 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 had no patience for it because they'd had enough tax on a French soil. They didn't want any more. It really depends, and, and of course things evolve over time as well. We in Canada tried to deport a whole bunch of Islamist extremists in the early two thousands, and yet because they're in Canada, they, they they got all lawyered up, and twenty years later they're still here. And actually, most of them are suing us for having persecuted them. That's all. Don't don't start me on Canadian legal systems. We had ample intelligence that these guys are terrorists, but intelligence is not evidence under Canadian law and can't be used. Blah, 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 blah. Anyhow. So in the name of Denmark, Denmark has this, this very famous Aarhus model, which is this de-radicalization program. Does it work? Well, the Danes think it does. I, as an old intelligence guy, I have a, a, a natural skepticism about, you know, because somebody tells you that it changed your mind doesn't mean you really have. And in your country, you've seen with administration changes, right? I mean, the previous administration, it wasn't all that, uh, you know, a keen to prosecute right-wing terrorism for one and you know was, was a lot more i think insistent on overseas operations to eliminate terrorism uh, obama administration was quite active as well the current administration so far under biden well you're getting out of afghanistan now i'm not saying that's a bad thing it's kind of a dan if you dan if you don't think but you're, you're seeing a, i think a change in in national policy uh under under biden in my country the, the harper government was i think a lot harder on terrorism than the trudeau government has been the Trudeau government has brought in new language that is senseless from my perspective and not calling things what they are for fear of being, I don't know, mean, <laughs> very Canadian. You, 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 here's a, here's a, a line for, for your listeners. You, you know how you, how you find a, a Canadian on a, on a crowded bus? Step on every passenger's toes. The first person to say sorry to you and you found the Canadian. That's, we say sorry to everything, right? So I, I think governments change over time. And I think that they've tried a whole bunch of things. They've tried the hard-ass stuff. I mean, Duterte in the Philippines basically killed everybody. Drug addicts, criminals, terrorists, he didn't care. Now he seems to be easing off maybe a little bit. But yeah, look at what China did in Xinjiang. They basically incarcerated a million people because they were potential terrorists. And yes, was there terrorism in Xinjiang? Absolutely. And I, I documented that in my, uh, my third book, Lesser Jihads. There have been terrorist attacks in, Ch in, in China over decades carried out by the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, Uyghur terrorists. Does that mandate the incarceration of a million people? No, it doesn't. But that was the Chinese government reaction to it. So you, you get a whole range of things. And the most interesting thing to me, to me, Liam, right now is different countries' reactions to their citizens that are holed up in refugee camps in northern Iraq and Syria who fought for Islamic State. Biden has called on all powers to, to repatriate. So far, Canada has repatri repatriated no one. 
Kazakhstan, of all countries, has repatriated most of their citizens. But most Western countries, as we understand the term, are saying, there's no goddamn way I'm willingly bringing back a citizen of my country who deliberately chose to join Islamic State. And what I think Islamic State stood for, mass rapes, killings, drownings, beheadings, all kind of stuff. You know, you uh, you made your bed, you're going to lie in it. And uh, my position is very simple. I think the children should be brought home because they had, this is not their choice. But I think the adults should stand trial where their crimes are committed, which is in Iraq, Syria, and Kurdistan. But the children should be brought back and either placed in state care or with the extended family because it wasn't their fault they joined. But all these moms saying, oh, I, 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 I've changed my mind. Well, you know what? If I kill someone and say, oh, I've changed my mind, does the state say, okay, I'll give you a second chance? It doesn't work that way. So it's a long answer to your question, but I think there's been a, a, a huge variation in terms of counterterrorism policy, both domestically and internationally, from a lot of states, not just Western states, but, but states all around the world. Kind of turning away from terrorism for a moment, towards the end of May, uh, there was a release of information that the United States, uh, in conjunction with Denmark, had been uh, conducting espionage on top EU officials, including uh, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Is this a very novel phenomenon? Um, is this par for the course as far as the United States goes? Um, is it common for the United States to conduct espionage upon its allies? I know that the EU officials um, expressed a lot of outrage and discontent, uh, but is this more of a kind of a public show of disapproval, um, or is this genuine uh, frustration and surprise? There was a U.S. Secretary of State, I believe his name was Henry Stinson, I forget which administration he served under, who said that gentlemen don't read other gentlemen's mail. Well, he was an idiot, <laughs> because we do. I worked in foreign intelligence for 17 and a half years at CSE, which is the equivalent of NSA in my country. And uh, I can tell you, without going into details, I did a lot of foreign intelligence. So put it this way, you're probably familiar with the, the concept of the five eyes. Okay, that's the Anglo Alliance, your country, my country, Great Britain. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, it's been an alliance since the, the aftermath of the Second World War. Uh, it's an incredible intelligence sharing alliance. It's a very um, close knit group. And basically, we don't spy on each other. So the five eyes, the Anglo centric uh, uh, intelligence sharing relationship means that we don't spy on the United States, you don't spy on us. Okay, you know, maybe nudge, nudge, wink, wink, but we were not supposed to. Beyond that, everything's foreign. Right? By definition, everything is foreign intelligence. What that means is that yes, you can have alliances. So I, you know, I happen to be a, a big fan of the EU, even though the EU seems to not be a big fan of itself most days. But the EU is not part of the Five Eyes Alliance, which means by definition it is a foreign entity, which means it is open to the possibility of, of gathering, processing, uh, and sharing intelligence with uh, with senior government officials. Am I surprised? I'm not surprised at all. Uh, and and the, the reaction is is really, it really is. I have to laugh because you know damn well that the very countries against which you're spying are also spying against you. I mean, spying is the world's what first, second oldest profession. I always forget which is, is it prostitution's number one and spying number two, or is it reverse? I forget. Spying has been going on since the beginning of time and will go on till the end of time. You, you, you collect intelligence under what's called foreign intelligence to gain an advantage over other, other countries, to learn what's happening, to help you make better policies help you make better decisions. That's what intelligence is for, right? And one thing that I've noticed, um, so I, I started in, 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 in signals intelligence or SIGINT way back in 1983. What I've noticed is that, you know, 
OSINT, open source intelligence, is, is almost as valuable these days because there's so much of it. Remember, I was born before the internet. <laughs> I know that's hard to imagine. This conversation was impossible when I was born. And, uh, you know, there's so much more open source that's available, but there's always a sliver that's only available by, you know, other, other methods, which we call foreign intelligence. So am I surprised? Of course, I'm not surprised. And, and I think a lot of the reaction is that they, 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 they know this is going on. They're not naive. They weren't born yesterday. You know, it's an interesting question. Should we do it? Uh, and some would or, or, or argue on moral grounds. Germany is an ally. We shouldn't be spying on it. Uh, okay. That and a buck and a half gets you a small coffee at the local coffee shop, as far as I'm concerned. Countries have always spied on, on, on their friends as well as their enemies and probably always will. So even if we're sharing information, like I said, the Five Eyes is an amazing club. I mean, the amount of intelligence that was shared amongst those five partners, is, it's, 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 it's hard to describe just how tightly wound that relationship is. Even though you guys were, were keen on the Kiwis back in the 80s when they wouldn't allow ships to dock because they wouldn't declare if they're carrying nuclear weapons or not. It is a very, very well-founded and very um, mutually beneficial intelligence sharing network. But outside of that, everyone's fair game. You may not like it. It's the way it is. You mentioned the Five Eyes Agreement. Is there any fear that any of the members might diverge in interest? Um, I know New Zealand, for example, might be of the different nations, perhaps the least inclined to openly oppose Chinese actions. Is there a fear that the alliance might kind of weaken or break at all? It's a really good question. And I think, uh, yeah, you're, you're probably correct. I think New Zealand, first of all, New Zealand has always been by far the smallest partner. I mean, they have a, they have a tiny SIGINT service and a tiny human service because they're a tiny country. There's only 3 million Kiwis, right? They're an important partner, you know, in terms of where, you know, what they can cover, but they're a small partner. And, and it, it does, I mean, different governments will have a different bearing on relationships. So I go back to, you know, the early, late 60s, early 70s, when, when the, the elder Trudeau, Pierre Elliott Trudeau was prime minister, those were problematic times for U.S. and American relations. Um, you know, Trudeau was, was having coffee with Castro. He was, uh, you know, talking to the Soviets and people say, what the fuck's going on in Canada? Are you guys part of the alliance or not? So uh, a change in government can make a difference, but I think that the intelligence agencies themselves, which yes, take their direction from their government, we have our mandates and our mandates are either legislative or they're in terms of policies uh, that the government's right. It would take a, a, a Herculean effort, I think, for the Kiwis to abandon the Five Eyes for the simple reason they get a heck of a lot more out of it than they put into it. And it's not clear to me what advantage that New Zealand would have by getting out of the alliance. They, they, they can maybe be a little less involved, but to say, you know, on a matter of principle over, over Chinese policy, we're going to leave the alliance. I don't think that's happening. And then, you know, what happens to the New Zealand Navy, New Zealand military? I mean, are they going to follow in the footsteps as well? I'm pretty sure the New Zealand, New Zealand Navy isn't too big on China and what they're doing in the South China Sea. So, yeah, the current government can make it, I think, make, make things awkward. As I said, in the 80s, the Kiwis did the same thing with your nuclear-powered ships that were trying to dock. But the alliance survived. It was a little bit shaky there for a while, but it did survive. And um, I don't see any reason why the, the Five Eyes Alliance would, would founder anytime soon. It's, uh, it's, it's proven it's worth, put it that way. For the amount of money we spend on it, it's, it's definitely... I, mean, I, I worked on cases where intelligence made the absolute critical difference between a good decision and a bad decision. And without that intelligence, who knows what would have, what would have happened.
All right, and to my last question, uh, we touched on this earlier, but are other nations uh, allied with the United States and Canada, are they conducting the same level of espionage upon their own allies, like the United States and Canada, um, to the extent that the United States is conducting espionage on nations like in Europe and elsewhere, or is you know such kind of extensive espionage um, somewhat unique to the United States? I, I doubt it. I mean, it's it's just a matter of uh, size. I mean, obviously, the Russians and the Chinese have major uh, espionage efforts against both of our countries because they're not allies. Russia was an ally, at least in counterterrorism, for a little bit in the in the nineties and two thousands. And I, I mean, I, I remember being in Moscow for a, when the G seven became the G eight for a couple of years. Um, you know, to discuss counterterrorism. You've asked me a question to which I really have no good answer because I don't know. I, I do know that in the wake of 9-11, um, the Five Eyes did an awful lot of effort to uh, reach out to our European partners. And the EU has a very robust intelligence sharing uh, network when it comes to things like counterterrorism and, and perhaps counterespionage. I never worked counterespionage, so I don't know. But you'd be, you have to be pretty naive to think that they weren't gathering information on us, even though we are allies, because that's what nations do. Nation A uh, spies on Nation B because they have information they think that they can that can be to its advantage, and they try to hide it. Obviously, you don't you don't you know. So this news that the Americans that your country was spying on Angela Merkel, I mean, obviously it's embarrassing. But I don't think anybody was surprised by it. I mean, you have to be you have to be born yesterday to think that you know uh, United States didn't have an interest in, in knowing more about what Germany is going to do on X, Y, or Z. Let's say you know, for example, the the, the Russian pipeline. That uh, just got uh, you know finished. That and, and, and the Americans uh, you know don't want the Russians to to, to ship oil to Germany because it means money for Russia and Russia's not our friend anymore. But Germany has economic interest in that regard. So you don't think the United States intelligence community and the government has an interest in what Germany decides in this regard? Absolutely. Uh, and if they get that information via intelligence, and so be it, or by or by diplomats in the ground in Berlin or Bonn or Dusseldorf, or whatever. So as I said, espionage and intelligence is a very very old game on this planet. And no one should think that anything is off 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 limits. I, I'm still pretty pretty confident, you know. I've been retired for six years now. That the Five Eyes relationship itself is still pretty pretty robust, and we don't do intelligence gathering per se on each other. It doesn't mean we don't gather information on each other. We do it all the time. That's why we have embassies and and and, and high commissions. That's 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 the whole point of them. But we do so in a more open fashion than we do against uh, partners that aren't our allies. Well, Phil. Those are our questions for today. If listeners want to find more of what you have to say, where can they go? So after I retired in, in, in April of, of 20, uh, 2015, after 32 years in the, in the intelligence agencies in Canada, uh, I formed my own co- my company, you call, you know, Borealis Threat Risk Consulting. I have a website, so it's borealisthreatrisk.com. There you'll find all my podcasts. I have uh, what I call Canadian Intelligence A, or CIA for short, mostly terrorism, but not exclusively terrorism. I have shorter podcasts called Quick Hits, which are about nine to 12 minutes in length. The, the longer ones are usually 30 to 40 minutes, usually a conversation like you and I are having with a guest. I have blogs. I have a Today in Terrorism blog where I, I talk about an act of terrorism that occurred in the past. I have perspectives that are longer pieces, written pieces about all things intelligence and terrorism related. And uh, it's also, um, so I've written six books, the most recent of which you, you, you mentioned, the, the Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the Present. It is Unique in the sense that no one has ever told the story from a, as a former insider. 
And what I did in the book is I interviewed 30 of my, my friends from the RCMP and from CSIS who worked in counterterrorism. It gave me the inside scoop on what it was like to work in counterterrorism, all the cases in Canada. Obviously, I had to be careful with information because it has to be at least, you know, available. But just interestingly, I sent a copy to CSIS for vetting and they never they didn't move a comma. So obviously, they either liked what I said or I, I did so carefully enough that they, they weren't upset about it. And that book's only available on the website. It, I had to self-publish this one, even though the first five were published by American publishers. This one being a strictly Canadian book, it wasn't uh, wasn't academic enough, I think, for the academic publishers. And so it's available on my website. It's only $25 Canadian plus shipping and handling. So you can go there and uh, fill in the form and I'll send you a book in the mail. But otherwise, I love talking to people about this stuff. I find it fascinating. And I just want to thank you, uh, Liam, for giving me the chance to uh, to share some of this information with uh, with you and with your listeners. Well, Phil, uh, thank you for speaking with us today. I know that I enjoyed this conversation, and so I'm sure listeners will as well. And on behalf of the Global Current, I'd just like to say thank you again for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.